0: with me to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 9 at verse 18 for our scripture text this morning. Luke 9 at verse 18, reading through verse 27. Hear the word of God. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised." And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, or loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Up until this point in Luke's gospel, we have seen that Luke has piled up evidence upon evidence to show the reader who Jesus is. Up until now, we've seen tremendous miracles at Jesus' hand, healing the sick, casting out demons, stilling the storm, multiplying the bread and the fish, and even raising the dead. But now we come to Peter's famous confession of Christ. We come also to Jesus' startling declaration that he must suffer and be killed and on the third day raised, the first time that the the disciples heard this description. And Jesus goes on to describe what that pattern means to everyone who would be a disciple of Jesus Christ. These words that the Messiah would be killed would have been Unbelievably hard for the disciples to understand at this point. And we know that they did not understand. They did not comprehend. In fact, they did not understand until sometime after his resurrection, the full implications of what had happened. Yet Jesus' description of the purpose and nature of the Messiah's ministry is at the very heart of the gospel. And it is absolutely necessary for anyone who is considering the claims of Jesus Christ and the person and the work of Christ as he is revealed in Scripture that you understand that it was central to Christ's mission that he purposefully laid down his life in suffering and rejection and atoning death for sin in order to be raised to life and to accomplish full redemption. We will look at this theme under three main points. First, Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah, and then second, Jesus' declaration of the Messiah's purpose, and finally, the way of the cross for every disciple. First, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah in verses 18 to 20. Jesus was praying, We read, and the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus records in verse, Luke records in verse 18 that Jesus is praying. And Luke's gospel account is the only one that records that fact. Clearly, Luke is implying, along with other key moments in Jesus' ministry in the gospels, Jesus Praise at this point as he poses these two very important questions to the disciples. And the first question the first question anticipates the second one. He asks, Who do the crowds say that I am? in verse nineteen? And their answer comes back, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. What is the common denominator in all of these answers? It's the fact that these answers all fall short of who Jesus really is. But it wouldn't have been surprising if up until now the disciples had seriously considered these answers that the crowds were giving as the answers that they might give as well, as possible answers to who Jesus Christ is. And still, today, we might say there is nothing new under the sun Many people have a vague idea that Jesus was some kind of a great person. If you ask someone on the street and you say to them, who was Jesus Christ? They would probably say, well, he was was someone great, I'm sure. Even many religions of the world would say that Jesus was a prophet of some sort or a holy man of some kind. But the true identity of Jesus Christ is far far above that of a prophet or of a holy man or a great example of how a person should live. And so Jesus asks his disciples a second question and one that is very important for them and for all of us. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered with his famous reply, the Christ of God. Most of us, as we read the Bible, Aren't really that surprised at Peter's answer at this point. Most of us grew up thinking that the title Christ was something like Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. But notice, Peter says the Christ, the Christ of God. Christ is simply the Greek word for the Messiah. If we translated it, we would say the Anointed One. That's what the Hebrew word for Messiah means the Anointed One. In the Old Testament, it was typical that priests would be anointed for service, but especially kings were anointed as well. Every king was anointed, and Jesus was the the supreme anointed one, anointed by the Spirit of God himself, the final and true high priest, fulfilling all the Old Testament expectations of this great high priest to come, the true and eternal king to rule forever, the Son of God and Savior. Peter's confession is really something that's very remarkable. It is not something that was natural or obvious at the time, especially since to a Jew like Peter of that day, looking for the Messiah, he would have expected someone with the trappings of royalty in some way. Maybe someone leading an army. Maybe a charismatic person bringing the nation together to throw off Roman oppression. That was the typical concept of what the Messiah would do, and that he would right every wrong even then. But Jesus, we know, came in humility and lowliness. And he was already being opposed and rejected by the religious and political leaders of the time, not what they would have expected of the Messiah. So, why this bold and unhesitating confession that Peter spoke? In part, because of the very evidence that Luke has been giving us. Last week we saw, after Jesus calms the storm, the disciples marvel and say, who is this then that he commands winds and water, and they obey him? And Peter has seen this same evidence, evidence upon evidence, day after day, week after week, he has seen multitudes healed and delivered, and he has, he has seen... Closely Jesus' life, his compassion, his love for the multitudes, his holiness of life. And he has heard Jesus' life giving words of truth again and again. So there's the evidence that Peter. Had before him. But also, we know from Matthew's account that as soon as Peter makes this confession, Jesus says to him these words Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, it was revealed to Peter by the work of the Holy Spirit in Peter's heart and mind. Where do you stand with confessing Jesus Christ? as Messiah, as your Lord and Savior. It's interesting that Peter's confession took place in this region about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, an area that was, in a sense, we would say, almost dedicated to the declaration, Caesar is Lord. In the year 3 BC, Herod the Great had a pagan temple built in this very region dedicated to the honor of Caesar Augustus. Confessing that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is Lord was never a popular statement in the Roman world. In fact, the early Christians would at times be put to death for refusing to make that confession Caesar is Lord and instead confessing Jesus is Lord. And all of them, At many times suffered loss of property and employment and so on. it, It is always against the grain of the world to confess Jesus Christ. But if you struggle with doubt, look again at these two things we've seen. Look again at the evidence in the Bible as to who Jesus Christ is and ask the Spirit to give you eyes to see the divine glory of Jesus Christ shining through in what Scripture speaks of him. Frank Morrison was a lawyer who set out to disprove Christianity. But as he read and studied the scripture with this goal of disproving the resurrection, his mind was totally changed. And he came to receive Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And instead of writing a refutation of Christianity, He wrote the classic book, Who Moved the Stone, the stone referring to the stone that the angels rolled away to show that Jesus Christ had already been raised from the dead. And in that book, Frank Morrison defended and sought to uphold the person of Christ and the reality and truth of his resurrection from the dead. That's the example of what the evidence of Scripture by the work of the Holy Spirit does and can do in a person's life. Peter's confession of Christ is a good example to us because Jesus is going to eventually talk about being ashamed of him. And Peter's later example of denying Christ three times reminds us that it will always take courage and grace from our God to continue to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Every disciple is weak and imperfect in his or her confession of Christ. We will never find our Lord's message to be popular at any time or at any age or any place. Some of you children may be experiencing that for the first time in your schools or with your friends, maybe others making fun of you in some way because you are a a disciple of Christ, but you will likely find the pressure to get even harder, not easier, as you grow up. And the pressure is on you to conform to the world. Ask God to give you grace to stand under the pressure and to seek to faithfully follow and confess Jesus Christ. But secondly, we come to Jesus' declaration of the Messiah's purpose. Jesus' declaration of the Messiah's purpose in verses 21 and 22. Actually, verse 21 leads into this statement Jesus makes. In verse 21, we see, And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Interesting, isn't it? He tells the disciples after this wonderful confession, Don't tell this to anyone. And the scripture tells us he did this strictly and he commanded them this. He was very serious about it. Why was this? Maybe it was because he knew that it was just not the right time. But also, it's very likely he told them this because they did not yet understand the purpose of the Messiah's ministry. If they proclaimed what they thought the Messiah was and who he was, they would have been proclaiming an inadequate, incorrect Christ. And Jesus goes on to explain Something that must have been very strange to the disciples' ears. That the Son of Man must suffer. That he must be rejected and be killed and on the third day be raised. This phrase, the Son of Man, is from the prophet Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man was a messianic figure prophesied long before by Daniel. And Jesus says the Son of Man must Suffer and be rejected and be killed and be raised. That word must is important. It connotes necessity. It connotes purpose. It's not just the Son of Man will or shall, but must. It's not just a prediction, but it's a declaration of God's mission for the Son of Man. I want you to try to imagine how radical and unbelievable this statement would have been to the disciples' listening ears. Never before had anyone in Israel connected suffering with the Messiah. It's very familiar to us. We're very used to that idea. We just tend to think of it that way. But that was an unheard of idea, even though there were passages such as Isaiah 53 that described the suffering servant and we know applied to the Messiah, but up to that time, they had never been seen as applying to the Messiah. But Jesus is saying, my mission will be fulfilled through rejection, through humiliation, through shame, the shameful death of a cross. We see here, Jesus is stating the central truth of the Bible, that Christ suffered and died on the cross to save sinners. And really, the rest of Luke's gospel begins to unfold and flesh out this great purpose of the Messiah as Jesus sets his heart and his mind to go to Jerusalem to die. To confess that Jesus is the Christ is also, you see, to believe and to confess and to trust that Jesus died for sinners. That By the great purposes of the triune God before the foundation of the world, Jesus was sent to suffer for our sins. Jesus' messiahship, Jesus' salvation had sacrifice at its heart. And so, thinking of all this, we're not surprised at Peter's reaction. It's not recorded here in Luke, but we find in Matthew and Mark's accounts that. Peter actually begins to rebuke Jesus for saying this. And of course, Jesus tells Satan to get behind him. He rebuked Peter instead. Why did Peter react this way? This was not Peter's idea of what the Messiah was going to do. In his mind, the the Messiah should be victorious. But we can't help but think probably part of Peter's reaction was also, I don't like this idea of suffering because I'm guessing that this would imply suffering for me as well. And that's not the agenda, Peter might have been thinking, that I have for my life. Don't you have the idea that uh, the disciples as they were with Jesus, especially at the beginning of his earthly ministry and before he started to talk about his death, don't you think that they had the idea that being along with him was kind of like being an advisor during a presidential campaign election time? That they were his advisors and when the coronation came and he became king, they would become his cabinet or something like that. That's far from the expectation that their leader was going to die on a Roman cross and that he was walking a pathway of suffering. One of the common objections to Christianity and to the gospel is the question of how a good and all-powerful God could allow suffering and evil in the world. We might say at this time, look at the coronavirus, what's happening in the world. I'm sure that there are people thinking and saying, where is God in all of this suffering, that's been said over and over again. I think back to 2004, to the, to the tsunami that killed more than 250,000 people uh, around the rim of the Indian Ocean. Doesn't an event like that disprove the existence of God The question might be stated this way, with all the the terrible suffering and evil in the world, how can it be true that the God of the Bible exists, the God that is both all powerful and all good, the God who is both sovereign and loving? How can the God, God of the Bible exist and be true with this kind of suffering in the world? Well, there are a number of ways that the Bible fully answers that question. But one of those answers relates directly to what Jesus is saying here. And that answer is this, that Jesus Christ came as a suffering Savior. Yes, he will come again as the glorious king and judge who will right every wrong and establish the new heavens and the new earth. But his first coming was this coming in deep humility and suffering and rejection. Jesus willingly and voluntarily came to suffer and die and to bear the curse of sin and to rise again for our salvation. And so in other words, you and I can never say that God doesn't care about suffering when the very Son of God himself entered this world and lived and died with the purpose of identifying with fallen and sinful human beings and really, because Jesus endured the wrath of God, Jesus suffered more than anyone on this earth ever suffers in this life. And the happy and glorious news of the gospel is that on the third day, Jesus was raised. Jesus also said, the Son of Man must be raised on the third day. That also was a divine necessity. And Jesus' resurrection vindicates his suffering and gives every believer confidence and assurance that death is not the end and that we will not be put to shame when Jesus Christ returns and we know that the Bible says, the gospel says that that confidence is not because of anything that we have done or anything that we have merited but only because of what Jesus has done as the sinless and spotless Lamb of God does all of this make you fall before your Savior in adoration and praise? If not, maybe you need to be asking the, the question, the, really the key question of life. Have I entrusted my soul, my life, my eternal salvation to this suffering Savior, now the risen Lord? Have you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord? And this brings us to our third point, the way of the cross for every disciple, beginning at verse 33. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Here Jesus is setting forth the terms of discipleship. The only way to be a disciple of Jesus, the only way to follow Jesus is to follow him to the very death every day. Jesus is talking about dying daily on the cross of self-denial and living for him. To die to selfish control of your own life, but instead following Jesus as Lord, to die to self-determination, And trying to somehow use Jesus to fulfill your own agenda for your life. And instead, living for the will of God in obedience to your Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we know that salvation is a free gift that we receive through faith in Christ. It is never earned. But in another sense, it costs you your very life. From now on, 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, You belong to Christ, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Christians belong to Jesus Christ. Look at how Jesus goes on to explain this seeming paradox in verses 24 to 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but uh, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Some translations say his soul. In coming to faith in Christ, in a sense, you lose your life. You give up your life because you give your life to Jesus Christ's rule and his reign in your life. But in doing so, Jesus is saying you actually save your life. You receive eternal life from Jesus Christ. Jim Elliot, the famous missionary, who, along with his small band of fellow missionaries, was killed by Akka Indians in nineteen fifty six, had earlier before his death written this famous sentence when he considered the dangers of the missionary work that his group was doing. Children, if you're diagramming sentences in your homeschooling these days, you could try it with this sentence. It has a double negative, which makes it a bit confusing, so you have to think it through. This is what Eliot wrote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do you hear that? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Really, you can see that Eliot is just paraphrasing what Jesus had already said here. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And so taking up our cross stands at the very entrance of the Christian life. It's part and parcel of believing in Jesus Christ initially, You give your life to him. You bow before him as your Lord. But Jesus also says that taking up our cross is part of our daily walk with Christ. It's part of being a disciple of Christ. It means dying daily to sinful, selfish desire. And all of us who know Christ and are walking with him are seeking to grow by God's grace in daily dying to sin. It's really a description of the voluntary inward pain of choosing what pleases Christ instead of what pleases sinful self. Let me say that once more. It describes the voluntary inward pain of choosing what pleases Christ instead of ple- choosing pleasing sinful self. And in that sense, don't we see how following Christ in the way of the cross is very much a part of daily discipleship. It's the way we grow by the power of the Spirit to become more like our Savior day by day. Johnny Erickson, who has lived in a wheelchair for 50 years as a quadriplegic, describes the relationship between difficult circumstances and inward daily cross-bearing in these words. This is what she writes. Our affliction becomes that which pushes and shoves us down the road to the cross. And that's what it means to become like him in his death. Don't think that the cross is simply the wheelchair or an irritating job or an irksome mother-in-law. The cross is the place where you die to sin and live to God. Do you see what she's saying? Affliction drives us to the cross. Don't think of the cross as the wheelchair. The cross is the place where you die to sin and live to God. And don't you and I face lots of decisions every day to die to sin and instead to live for God? And the wonderful promise that Jesus gives is that as we confess him as Lord and are not ashamed of him, so he will not be ashamed of us when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Somerset Mogam was a famous author of the 20th century. His novel of human bondage is a classic. In 1965, at the age of 91, he was still fabulously rich. And even though he hadn't written for many years, he still received over 300 letters from fans every week. In an article by the London Times, there's a description of his nephew, Robin, visiting him at his villa on the Mediterranean shortly before Morgan's death. Robin calls his uncle Willie, and here's what he says. I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remember that the villa itself and the wonderful garden I could see through the windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean, were worth 600,000 pounds. And remember, that was 1965. Willie had 11 servants, including his cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined off silver plates, waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henri, his footman. But it no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible which had a very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. He said, I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the the quotation, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that, the text, that that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. What a startling assessment in the very face of eternity. Jesus is the King of glory who went the way of the cross that we might receive life eternal. That's the great news of the gospel. And the call to trust in him and give him our lives is the fundamental issue of each of our lives. What is that message to you? Is it bunk or is it life? Let us pray. Father, we thank you that our great and glorious Savior willingly and voluntarily set his face to go to the cross against all opposition, against all rejection, against all betrayal and misunderstanding. Thank you that he did so, that we might live. Lord, let us take you at your word and believe in his name and gladly confess him that we might look forward to this day, that day when he will come again in glory. And he will say, "Well gut, go- well done, thou good and faithful servant." We pray in his name, Amen.